It takes more than achieving 100% test coverage by not putting any assertions in your test cases to be a great engineer. This is Soft Skills Engineering episode 196. I'm your host, Dave Smith. I'm your host, Jameson Dance. Soft Skills Engineering is a weekly advice podcast for software developers about non-technical topics such as, well, not such as, <laughs> removing assertions from your test cases. 100% test coverage is technical, but 0% test coverage is soft skills. <laughs> Defending why you're not going for 100% test coverage is soft skills. <laughs> defending, well, defending why you're explicitly going for zero. <laughs> it's like, can we really know anything in this world? <laughs> I'm pretty sure there's a chunk in working effectively with legacy code that actually recommends this as a way to get tests in place. Like just the fact that you can run a test, even if it does nothing, the fact that you can like instantiate code and do nothing with it is sometimes progress for some systems where they have so many dependencies and are so gnarly to work with. Mm -hmm. So I guess I'm recommending this. This is this is an approved strategy. Don't don't put any assertions. Okay. <laughs> Just test that your compiler works. I guess <laughs> <laughs> it can build. Yeah. This episode is sponsored by Vettery. Vettery is a marketplace to help you find great developer jobs, and you will hear more about them later. We'd like to thank those that are contributing on our Patreon. That gets them a shout out every single week. They are Braden Keynes, Chris Hogan, Dennis Bogdanov, Ivo Robotnik, John Grant, Luis Santos, Luke Bayless, Matthew Voidovich, Nick Cantor, Philip John Basile, The Agile Ventures, Charity, Sean, Sonic the Hedgehog, Sunny Tai, Stanley Tactical Radio, Stephen Armand Lee, Taras Haruk, Ted Nugent, Maple Syrup, Vinlock, and Zach Grannon. Thank you so much. If you'd like to join them, you can go to softskills.audio and click support us on Patreon. And if you do, we'll send you an invite to our Slack pod flock where you can join uh, well over 100 folks who have done that and have great conversations every day. I just noticed that this list of names is in mostly alphabetical order, but not all the way alphabetical. And now I am dismayed. <laughs> is there a name for this algorithm? This is like mostly lexicographical sort. <laughs> <laughs> it's non-deterministic lexicographical. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Oh, yeah. One more thing. We are interested in doing shows at conferences. So if you know, this is kind of like a reverse CFP, a call for <laughs> conferences instead of a call for presenters. If you know of conferences that you think would be interested in having us do a live show there, let us know. Just get in touch. You can hit us up on Twitter at SoftSkillsEng. That might be the best way. Yeah. Yeah. We'd love to do that. So tell us if you know of things. Just come to Jameson's house and knock on the door. He'll be there. <laughs> yeah, that's true. When was the last time I left my... Oh, I left my house yesterday. Doing okay. <laughs> All right. Good job. On to the questions. Okay. I shall read our first one. This comes from an anonymous listener who says, Hi, thank you for the great podcast. You're welcome, anonymous person. They go on to say, I work for a software consultancy as a senior product manager. For five plus years, our team of 40 designers, developers, and QA has designed, built, deployed, and operated a large SaaS platform. We are passionate about evolving the product. We know the domain well and have managed to improve a lot of processes in the client's company. We go way beyond just development. The problem is that the client's internal staff treats us poorly, especially when it comes to product decisions. As a product manager, I have all the responsibilities of a respected in-house specialist, but almost no power. When I refuse to prioritize a feature that does not make sense based on data and user research, the client's customer success reps go crazy and escalate it to my CEO. I have seen email threads where internal employees call us, quote, offshore resources, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> Those three dots tell all the story. <laughs> yeah. How can I change the situation? I don't want to leave this job because I really like the product I'm working on as well as the team. Thank you. Ooh. Wow. 
Yeah, this is hard. Maybe you should just move offshore and make it real. <laughs> so a software consultancy, 40 people for five years building a SaaS platform. I'm just thinking like, how much money does this cost? <laughs> yeah. That's a large dollar amount. This, you <laughs> yeah. must be doing a great job yeah. to be worth it. Either that or their client is just enormous. <laughs> you know, huge company. Yeah. Yeah, this is really hard. There are these structural relationships in play that affect how you work together. This is hard enough in internal companies that are large where teams are big enough and far enough away that they don't interact very much. Mm -hmm. Things can get kind of weird and adversarial or just problems caused by exceeding Dunbar's number. But when you have the fact that you're like not part of the group in this way when you're from a separate consultancy, it seems like it's exacerbating the potential for bad behavior that's already there. Like this tension between product and and people who want things from product is real and exists everywhere. But the fact that like product is a different company that they might see as lower status really, yeah, really makes this tricky. I like how you dropped the word Dunbar numbers so casually. Oh. That was like, well, you were like, nice weather today. I've read a lot of Twitter threads. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a well-educated man, well-versed in the ways of Twitter threads that summarize books that summarize research. Uh, Dunbar's number is from this researcher who looked into group dynamics, I'm pretty sure, and his name was Dunbar. And okay. he basically came up with a number of people that interact well together. It's kind of like the number of close connections you can maintain. Mm -hmm. and it's 150, I think. There's some other Whoa. research that kind of shifts that up and down a little bit. Wait, that's really big. Dunbar's number? Yeah, wait, uh -huh. did, you, did you think it was going to be smaller? I thought it was going to be like three. <laughs> no, no, no. No, this is for like how big of a... Let's see. Okay, I'll do the thing I do, which is look at Wikipedia. Suggested cognitive limit to the number of people with whom one can maintain stable social relationships. Relationships in which an individual knows who each person is and how each person relates to every other person. Okay. So it's basically like the number at which you can look at people as people and not as abstractions or, or like part of a team that you don't know very well or something okay. like that. And what is the number? 150. 150. Seriously. That's what he said. Other people say other things, but they're all kind of in that order of magnitude. 100, 100 to 200-ish. Good heavens. I can't remember why I said that though. What did I, what did I say about Dunbar's number? Well, first of all, you were very smooth with it. So I just want to say kudos okay. to you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> kudos Thank to you. Thank you. Secondly, I've been thinking about it lately. That's why. <laughs> You're just waiting for this moment. <laughs> that you were saying when a team grows. So I think what you're saying is there are structural relationships that inhibit these people from really understanding you as a human being. And it wasn't so much that, that Dunbar's number is at play here, but that there are structural barriers. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the fact that they have a consultant group with with 40 people indicates the company is probably pretty large like i would be i would assume that the company is much larger than 40 people otherwise that would be a, oh yeah that okay yes i think there's a lot of people and it's likely that you're dealing with large groups that are larger than dunbar's number which means it's going to be hard to relate to them as people and instead you have to relate to them with abstractions and they relate to you as abstractions and it's easier to say like this team of strangers is, is a bunch of dummies, then like yes. this person that I know is a dummy. Right. Especially when you start throwing around labels like, quote, offshore resources, which is apparently what they've been called. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's that's oil, right? Like uh, oil is uh, oil, <laughs> oil fish, <rigs. laughs> buried treasure. I'm thinking of things that are <laughs> offshore resources. <laughs> the buried treasure is an offshore resource. That is so true. The great old ones that live in the depths. 
<laughs> Davy Jones is an offshore resource. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> Why am I laughing at this? Okay. I don't know. Because uh, it's really funny. Because <laughs> I'm so funny, Dave. You are. I mean, you're obviously brilliant. <laughs> dropping words like Dunbar's number. And then following it up with this joke like effortless comedy. Man. Oh, yes. Ah, the show is finally a monument to my ego. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So what is what does our listener do to improve this situation? Yeah, like I, I think you hit it on the head when you identify these structural relationship barriers. And we're using the term structural here because there are there's literally a company boundary between them, right? Which creates a power yeah. dynamic where... The customer has all the power and you have to do what they say. And I think that the only way to break that down is to establish interpersonal relationships with the individuals on the other side of the team so that they can start thinking of you or on sorry, on the other side of the company boundary. So they can start thinking of you as a person. And then when you oppose one of their ideas, they can instead of just kind of throwing a tantrum, which is how I interpret this <laughs> a little bit of a tantrum. Yeah. They can actually engage you in it and discuss it. Yeah. This, this interaction of the clients, customer success reps escalating to the CEO. I mean, there's also a chance if you really know your stuff. So the question asker mentioned, we have this data and user research, and that's how I determine my priorities. Like there is a chance that if you can clearly communicate how you prioritize that escalating to the CEO ends up reflecting well on you because instead of it being like someone whining that you won't do what they say, you can use it as an opportunity to explain, here's how we prioritize. And this is the data we use. And this is, these are the metrics we're looking at. Here's the user research we have to back it up. Yeah. And like, you're paying the bills. So at the end of the day, if you really want us to ignore this, that's fine. But but we would prefer to make decisions based on this information we have. Yeah, I love that. I love how you just completely paint them into a corner. It's like, if you would like us to ignore all of this objective research and data, we can do that because you have the money. <laughs> and then they're just yeah. like, uh, yes, I would like you to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, customer success reps getting worked up, presumably they're worked up because of some customer issue. So I guess that's another f input and you shouldn't mm -hmm. ignore it. So maybe there's an opportunity here to get ahead of that. Like, like this is kind of like the same thing you said, but collaborate more with them and use them as input along with this user research and data you have. Like, I don't know, customer pain yeah. through customer success reps is, is also potential input. Too. Yeah, that's a, it's a data point. You know, I just realized I was in a relationship like this where we were an, a contractor for the U.S. government and we had we had full-time U.S. government employees that were paying the bills and ultimately were in this the shoes of the customer success rep in this story. And we were the other mm -hmm. company on the other side of that. And we had, to, we had to walk a very careful balance beam where on the one hand, we wanted to always build up capital, like political capital with these folks to make sure that they knew that we were on top of things and we were competent and capable. But also once in a while, they would just play the customer card and say, do this. And even if we opposed the idea, yeah. we would just once in a while have to suck it up and do it. And it was all in the interest of preserving yeah. the long-term relationship. And it worked great. Like probably 90% of the time they deferred to our judgment and we really had a seat at the table. But once in a while, you know, they would mm. just kind of put their foot down and we would just have to suck it up and do it because that was the nature of the relationship. So you're saying it's kind of the cost of, of being in this client-customer relationship. Yeah, yeah. this is, it, the more we talk about this, the more this sounds like, the balancing the customer relationship with with what you think is right it sounds like even more of a product problem like this is this is the problem of product is how you balance 
all these competing priorities yeah. and voices and motivations and stuff. And you, you have like extra tricky things added in there, but it all feels sort of like the same problem of, uh, you say I have all the responsibilities, but almost no power. Mm-hmm. Like product owners often don't have any power. That's true. <laughs> they're, they're not the ones doing the actual work. So, I mean, there it, it depends on, it changes from org to org. There are some orgs where product is kind of, kind of runs the show. These are kind of, Producty problems. The biggest wrinkle here is this lack of respect in treating you as second-class citizens. I don't think that's a normal juggling all these different priorities is a normal product thing, but that doesn't feel yeah good or normal. Yeah, that just takes what is already, in my opinion, the hardest job in product development and makes it even harder. So, how do you approach that? Because that might be causing some of these other problems as well. If they if they don't respect you. You come with all this data and they're like, yeah, but you're just the offshore resource. So <laughs> all you know is buried treasure. I don't know. The salty <laughs> taste of, yeah, clams or something. <laughs> Get back on your pirate ship. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what do you do? And I think once in a while, like I said before, I think once in a while you just have to suck it up and do what they say to maintain the relationship. And then other times you got to push back. And boy, that is. That requires judgment, skill. Yeah, pushing back is is scary in most situations, but especially when you're pushing back against it's not even your employer, it's someone who's who's like deciding, yeah, we'll pay you this week. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I mean, yeah, I just keep returning back to the old reliable sports movie metaphors. Like there's okay. always some moment of like either a protagonist or a coach or somebody who the group doesn't respect and they have to win respect somehow. How do they do it like take a bullet or something shared adversity sometimes happens yeah taking a bullet has been known to happen (laughs) yeah i don't know i I, like that that seems like the harder problem to solve here is is it's not just the product issues and the the client relationship it's like they're seen as these second class citizens well maybe maybe the problem here is that these customer success managers don't actually feel listened to and so maybe it's kind of endemic and it just manifests mm. as a blow up every once in a while. And so maybe you need like a regular check-in with these folks where you sit down with them and, and let them form a, a cohort of people that give input to the product regularly so that they always know that their voice is heard and they know why you're choosing what you're choosing to prioritize. That makes sense. I think also what you could do is what I do whenever someone doesn't respect me, which is I get down on my knees and I cry and I say, please respect me. I beg you. <laughs> And then usually that works really well. <laughs> they say, okay, I respect you now. I thought you were going to say you drop like obscure scientific paper references to earn their respect. No. That's how you earn my respect. Oh, well, I got to step up my game then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So maybe maybe they're upset by this, what they see as uh, lack of communication or something. But I mean, it's it's hard because it's inherent in this relationship with, with you as a vendor that, that you're not as part as much a part of the team as full-time employees. And that's one of the advantages. Like if they go through budget cuts, it's a lot easier to say, hey, we're not going to use this consulting company than, than to lay off somebody. So I don't know how you get around that. I don't know. This is hard. Yeah. Well, question <laughs> answered. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I, I think you're probably right. There's probably something around clear communication. Would you Would you ever bring up directly the fact that, hey, it feels like we're not respected and that makes it hard to do good work? I don't think so. I don't think so. I mean, respect is earned and it's not earned by telling someone that you're not respecting me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, oh, sorry. 
my bad. Okay, <laughs> now, now I do. Now I do. <laughs> let, me just, let me just reach over here and flip the respect switch to the on position. Okay. <laughs> I, I think one thing to learn here that doesn't help you is that if you're in the other situation, if you're working with vendors or, or consultants or contractors or something, I think it can be easy to fall into this trap of saying like, oh, they're just the, the vendors or the consultants or whatever. And to be aware of that, that that's mm-hmm. a... They're real people that you have a real relationship with. And if if you feel like they are second-class citizens, they know it and they feel it too. So, yeah. All right, I have one last idea and then we can wrap this one up. Sure. Next time you kill one of their feature requests, just mm-hmm. tell them you killed it, but tell them, look, we had a very nice funeral. Here are the flowers. <laughs> people said more people came than we thought. And they said some very nice things about your feature, but it's dead. Give them its corpse as a memento. <laughs> Ta- get get the feature request taxidermied. <laughs> Mount it in a nice plaque. <laughs> Perfect. Okay, now, now the, I love it. the question is answered. <laughs> All right. Hey, Jameson, before we go on to our next question, did you hear that one of our Slack community members just got a new dev job with a $50,000 raise? Yeah, that was wild. They used a service called Vettery. Vettery matches developers with employers based on what you want, like your location, salary requirements, and technologies you want to work with. Yeah, so I actually signed up myself, and within a week, they sent me a job opportunity. The hiring manager wrote me a very nice note, and the salary was actually amazing. I was pretty impressed. I don't know. I'm a pretty big fan of my current job search process, which is quitting my job and then asking <laughs> strangers on Twitter if they know anyone hiring for Cobalt. <laughs> So, okay. So once you sign up for Vettery, you actually get a dedicated consultant assigned to help you tweak your profile and find the opportunities you're interested in. And the best part is you get those pesky salary requirements out of the way early in the process. No more going through the whole interview process, only to find out that your expectations are way off. Another thing I like is that there's no coding test to get started. And as much as I love balancing binary trees on a whiteboard under time pressure, that's, that's a pretty cool thing. If you're thinking of taking the soft skills engineering advice of quitting your job, you should check out Vettery. Go to vettery.com slash soft skills to sign up. That's V-E-T-T-E-R-Y dot com slash soft skills. And if you use that link, you'll help support the show. And if you get a job through Vettery, you get 300 bucks. Thank you so much to Vettery for sponsoring the show. I will read the next question. This is from a listener named Connor. Connor asks, a recent round of layoffs at my company has me thinking about my future as a software engineer. Every layoff I've been through, the more tenured employees are the ones let go. I also, generally speaking, haven't seen a lot of older software engineers, 50 plus, in the companies I have worked for. I love programming, but can I reasonably expect to stay employable in this field for the next 40 years? Ah. Wait, 50 plus, 40 years... Is Connor 10? (laughs) Have we been replaced by 10-year-olds? Oh, no. That's the next wave. They're going to start teaching computer science in elementary school. Oh, no. (laughs) I'm so out of touch. I was feeling old and out of touch because I don't understand Gatsby. But this is helping also. So there's a couple. Yeah, there's like layoffs and ageism together. Mm -hmm. Two great ingredients in a... (laughs) Sad stew. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man, yeah. I've seen the. I've only been through one round of layoffs, but I saw the opposite, where the most, the most recent hires were let go. Oh. And the idea was like, they have less context, and they're still getting up to speed more, and 
I don't know, it'll be more impactful to let go the most experienced people. But this was at a startup and the oldest developer was like 28 or something. <laughs> okay. This, this ancient curmudgeon <laughs> yeah. who is so wise and experienced had kids that spoke English. <laughs> <laughs> they could actually speak. Yeah. Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> wise elder. Uh, so yeah, this, it sounds like if there are rounds of layoffs, that's probably a much bigger company, much more established. Yeah, it could be. I've been through remarkably few layoffs in my career. Let's see. Been working full time for 17 years. And the only layoff I've experienced was when I was an intern before that time. Hmm. So yeah, kind of, I don't have a lot of experience with layoffs, but I have had this, I had the same concern when I was in the very beginning of my career as a developer, I was looking around and saying, where are all the 50 plus engineers? And I thought about that a lot. And I came to a different conclusion than what I think Connor is asking, which is, you know, Connor's concerned that they all either like burn out or get laid off and can't be reemployed. I've come to a different conclusion, though, which is that the industry was and still is growing at the bottom. And what I mean by that is that all new engineers tend to be young, you know, mm -hmm. the vast majority of them. There are obviously second career switchers and stuff like that. They are very small, I think, as a proportion of the total incoming engineers. So by definition, less tenured folks, because the industry is growing and only growing at the bottom, outnumber more tenured folks. And I don't think that the 50 plus folks are necessarily leaving the industry, but they just get outnumbered by the new entrants. Yeah. Huh. That's really interesting. I feel like that's something we could study if we were dedicated or in, smart or in any way qualified to study <laughs> but instead hey why don't one of you listeners go get a phd in sociology or something yes. answer that question for us that's a really interesting theory there, yeah. i mean there's also there are like escape valves at the top i guess so it's not only that there's more people coming in who are younger I think the longer you're in the industry, the more likely, the more opportunities you have to move into management mm -hmm. and some percentage of people take those. So there's like people leaving to go into management Yep. or like forestry, preservation, <laughs> I don't know, just some totally other different career. Maybe, maybe the answer is programming is so lucrative that by the time you're 50, you're retired. Yeah. Everyone right. retires. <laughs> yeah. So they just don't need to work anymore. They're all, they all go offshore. They're all retired. Yeah, they become offshore resources. On yachts. Living in, yeah, living on their yachts. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't think I have, I, I will say that I think, I think it depends where you work. Okay. There, there are different cultures and companies that kind of carefully or through accident attract different demographics. And my impression is that larger, more established tech companies might be places that have larger percentages or proportions of older developers. Yes, I've seen that. I think, I think the calculus changes a lot where I imagine I would be attracted more to stability than risk and new shiny. Like if I'm 50, I'm not going to be like, all right, time to risk it all on this 22-year-old <laughs> startup idea. <laughs> sure, you need what I can provide and... Yeah. I'm sure this equity will work out. <laughs> Can I reasonably expect to stay employable in this field for the next 40 years? I think the answer to that is, yeah, if you want to. Like, there is so much to learn forever. Like, the, the field is both growing and very large. Like, if you just sat down to learn all of the current state of the art of software, 
it would take you longer than your life and there's more getting added to it so i i think like is there enough to do yeah and also in terms of the demographics that i think that almost not almost i think it makes more experienced developers more valuable if if the proportions are changing so that the field is getting younger that there are more inexperienced people like the the leverage that you have as a experienced tenured developer is higher now where you have a lot more people to influence and there's a lot more folks to share your hard-won wisdom with. Yeah, I definitely have experienced that. I mean, not to discount ageism, like that's a thing. I'm I'm sure that looking old makes it harder to get hired at some places. Yes, definitely. I think that definitely happens. But I, I would suspect that it is not the number one cause of why you don't see as many 50-year-old developers as you do 20-year-old developers or 25-year-old developers. Yeah, I I think one thing I've seen, I am not 50, but even in my career is the importance of keeping up to date. This is kind of a cliche, I guess, but I'll say it anyways, where the field changes. So there's some chunk of experience you have that that crosses, that, that is broadly applicable no matter the current technology stack. But there's also a large chunk of knowledge that is very tool specific and and that's the stuff that goes away pretty frequently and that needs to be refreshed a lot so i think if you keep up the skill of refreshing that knowledge while you're accumulating this broad kind of longer lasting knowledge around like architecture and practices and Mm -hmm. kind of how to be generally effective that's that's probably helpful for keeping your career going long term and soft skills don't forget soft skills especially soft skills yeah (laughs) I just remember this feeling of learning like my second tech stack where where I learned the first tech stack and it felt like in some ways it came easily because everything was new and I just learned like, yeah, this is the way it is. But learning the second one felt way harder because I was fighting against this knowledge that I already had, kind of like trying to throw away stuff I already knew. I think if you can keep that skill up so it's easy to keep up to date with new stuff and also get real good at soft skills, like Dave said. All right. So the answer is Yes but I'll tell you for sure in a few years yeah. when I get there. <laughs> like what, like 20 <laughs> years in your case? <laughs> yeah, 20-ish years. Call us back in 20 years. We'll still be going. The show will still be going. We will. Yeah, there will still be questions. All right, have we answered the question? Yeah, I think so. Good luck, Connor. What can people do if they want their own questions answered? Go to softskills.audio and click the Ask a Question button. Thank you so much to everyone who has done that. There are so many and we love them. Uh, you are the lifeblood of the show. If you want to support the show, go rate us on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen to podcasts. What can people do if they want to support the show? They can also go to softskills.audio and click support us on Patreon and give us money to pay for the show and life. <laughs> yes. All right. Thank you so much for listening. We'll catch you next week. <laughs>